All right, good morning, everyone. Thank you for allowing us again to come into your living rooms and join together to worship the Lord. Again, I'm, I'm grateful for Benjamin. The Lord has anointed him, and it's a blessing, the things that we're learning and reinforcing the theology and the Christian truths of the gospel as we sing them together. It's a blessing. And thank you, Jeremy, for a wonderful prayer and a shout-out for all of our staff working very hard and um, ministering to our people at this time. As you may have noticed, we have a new website up and running, thanks to Tracy and many others who are working. And thank you, Bob, for last week's very encouraging pastoral message. If you weren't able to see Bob's message, I want to encourage you to go online and listen to that. Lots of very practical instructions for us as a church during this time as we deal with the coronavirus. This morning now we're going to have a time in the Word, and I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Normally, as I said, we give out Bibles, but can't help you with this. However, I hope that if you're at home, you'll have your Bible out. This is a discipline to just getting out the Word and, and following along. You might want to write some things down. And by the way, I encourage you to invite others to watch these services as well. As the Apostle Paul said, I'm eager to preach the gospel. And as I've often said, if you invite a person to join our study, then we'll try to have something for everybody, for the seeker, for the mature Christian, for the beginner in Christ. The Word of God is alive and powerful. So be praying and can't hurt to just invite people to join us. We're in the middle of First Thessalonians where Paul wrote this very practical letter and the irony is, he's writing to a group of people that he wants to be with them, and he can't. Much like us. We want to be with our friends. We want to be with our loved ones. We want to be with the church, but we can't. So how did Paul deal with that? Well, he wrote them a very personal letter expressing his deep love for them, explaining to them why he couldn't be with them, that Satan had hindered and made it impossible for him to be with them. But in the meantime, it's very interesting. If you'll begin with me in verse 10 of chapter 3, he said he wants to see their face and complete what is lacking in their faith. That is really interesting. None of us have arrived as Christians. None of us are perfect. But we all have areas where we need to grow. Paul wasn't concerned here that these Christians weren't living for the Lord. He told us in chapter 1 that they were actually examples to the other churches. They were on fire for the Lord. They were enduring suffering. They were abounding in love. But he recognized that in the short time that they were believers, there were some gaps. There were some truths that they didn't understand yet. He had come to learn about some areas that they needed to really reflect on. And I want you to stop and think for a moment. Do, do a self-assessment just for a moment and ask yourself, what are some areas where I need to, to grow? For some of you, it's, it's in your beliefs. You just don't know the Bible. You haven't taken the time to study 
Many of you, it's been encouraging to see that you're eager, and I thank the Lord for Pastor John's put some wonderful resources online. So for those of you that just have been either lazy or you just, for whatever reason, you missed the boat and you haven't really studied the Word, this is an opportunity. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, be diligent to add to your faith knowledge. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So take advantage of these opportunities. Get a study Bible. Join a, an online group. So probably there were some doctrinal areas that they needed to grow. But we're also going to see that there were some personal, practical areas, particularly when it came to their sexuality, that Paul's going to be very frank with them and say, listen, this is an important aspect of your Christian faith. But if I had to summarize the theme of our passage this morning, I think I'm going to use the word progress. Progress. In verse 12, he says, I want you to increase and abound in love. And then down in chapter 4, verse 1, he says at the end, I want you to excel still more. Making progress and growing is a really important part of the Christian life, it's not optional. In fact, the Bible says, discipline yourself to become godly. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Peter said, be all the more diligent to add certain things to your faith. And so there's a transition in the letter that we're beginning. Paul is finishing up his personal portion, and now he's going to move to the practical section. And the transition is going to actually be what we call a benediction. So the first thing we're going to look at is verses 11 through 13. I want you to pay careful attention to this passage because it technically is not a prayer. But yet, it is a prayer. You'll notice that what Paul will say here is not directed to God. He's not saying, God, this is what I want you to do but rather, this is what I wish and hope that God will do. This is what we call a benediction. In the Old Testament, the high priest would look out over the people and say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. He wasn't talking to the Lord. He was talking to the people. But he was inviting God's blessing. So let's look at this prayer benediction that Paul wishes upon the Christians in Thessalonica. And let's remember here that this is something that you and I can pray and wish upon our family, our spouse, our children, and our brothers and sisters. So I'm going to read it, and then we'll make some comments. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. So he wants God to get them back together. And then he says, And secondly, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you. So that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 
My brothers and sisters, there is such a thing as praying smarter, not just harder. It's not just being more fervent as you pray, but being more biblical and thoughtful and reflective of what you're praying for. One of the things that you'll find is that Paul has recorded for us a number of his prayers in the New Testament. There's a long one in Philippians 1. There's one in the beginning of Colossians chapter 1. There's two of them in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 3. There's several of them in the book of Thessalonians. And I would encourage you, if you want to jumpstart your prayer life, instead of just going, Lord, be with Billy and be with John and be with Jim, if you want to learn to pray better, study these prayers. I'm going to mention a book here that I, I have found so inspiring. It's a book by Donald Carson, D.A. Carson, and it's called Praying with Paul. Praying with Paul. Just a little paperback. We have it in the bookstore, but that's not going to help you. But you can order it on Amazon, Praying with Paul by Donald Carson. And he just goes through each of these prayers of Paul. But let's just take this one apart. And what I want you to think about is when Paul prays, it'll often have a succession of subordinating clauses. Now, that's a fancy grammar way of saying this. He'll say, I pray this so that this happens so that this happens. In fact, he has a very lengthy one in Philippians. But there's a subordination here. So let's start with what is it that he wishes? Well, in verse 11, may God direct our way to you. Now, that's a really interesting word because that word just means to guide or lead or to clear the way. Now, if you remember at the end of chapter 2, he said, we wanted to come to you but Satan thwarted us. That Greek word literally meant to chop up like a road. So Satan had broken the bridge and chopped up the road, and Paul's praying, God, fix the road. Make it possible for me to get back with those dear brothers and sisters. But then he tells us that what he wants God to do for them is to cause them to increase and abound in love for one another. Now, right there, I just want you to stop and think about this. This should be a regular part of our Christian prayers. I once heard a person say, I got tired of going to prayer meeting because I felt like I needed to bring a copy of Gray's Anatomy. Now, if you remember, Gray's Anatomy was that old medical textbook because all people ever asked prayer for were physical illnesses. What's diverticulitis? What's gingivitis? What's arthritis? But when you look in the New Testament, it's rarely prayers for our health, but it's prayers for our soul and our character. And these prayers are very direct, very specific. So we can pray that God will cause us to have an increasing love for one another, that our love will actually deepen and progress. Now, the interesting thing is that when Paul prays for love, he often couples that with a knowledgeable, informed love. 
At another time, I encourage you to look at Paul's prayer in Philippians chapter 1. He says, This I pray that your love will abound in knowledge and discernment so that you may approve things that are excellent. Right now, a lot of people are complaining that they're kind of trapped. Mothers are, are, and I get it, they're needing a break. Husbands and wives are, quote, at each other's throat. I need some space. But is it possible that God may be saying to us, well, I got a better idea. Why don't you pray that you will increase in your love? Well, how's that going to help? The kids are getting on my nerves and my husband's annoying me. Well, here's how it's going to help. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is unselfish. And so as we ask God through the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, he can produce in us a growing, practical, tangible capacity to love other people. Even when people are bothering us, even our enemies, Paul says, I'm praying that God will cause you to increase and abound in love, not just for one another, but for all men. How about that neighbor that's really annoying? How about that coworker that you avoid? How about that politician that you can't stand? How about that political ruler in another country. God works in our hearts and he changes us and he increases our ability to show love to others. This isn't self-help. This isn't try harder. This is pray often, God, allow me to have a greater practical love for my family and it'll show up. It's not just going to be, oh, I'll keep praying till I get a quiver in my liver but my behavior is going to change because God's love is compelling me. But you'll notice that this is not an end in of itself. Paul doesn't want them to increase in love simply for that reason. But instead, it is with a view to the coming of the Lord. Remember, we we, we called this series Walking While Waiting. And every chapter of this book ends with a reference to the return of Christ. You see, once a person came to Christ, Paul then had another motive. I want that person to become a mature Christian so that when they stand before Jesus, they receive a full reward that they, quote, get the most out of their Christian experience, that they live their lives to the most capacity that they could for the Lord so that they might be received into glory with an abundant welcome. This is what drove Paul. In Colossians 1, he said, I proclaim Christ to everyone. I warn every man. I teach every man with all wisdom. I want to present every believer complete in Christ. And so his desire is that these Thessalonians would become mature, loving Christians, making good decisions and investing in one another. Why? So that God would establish their hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 
I want you to think about that word. What does it mean to be unblameable? That's an interesting word. None of us are sinless. But yet, this is the same word that Paul uses for elders when he says, an elder must be blameless. Now, if that means that I can't ever make a mistake, then game over. To be unblameable does not mean that we won't make mistakes. But what do we do about it? To be a blameless man, and, and men, I want to encourage you to strive for this. The Bible says if any man desires to be an elder, that's a fine work he desires. An elder must first of all be blameless. Someone once gave what I thought was a very helpful illustration of a blameless person. No one can point a finger at them and say, yeah, well, they did this or this or this, and they didn't make it right. Does that make sense? So maybe you say, yeah, well, I, I lost my temper at work. Well, what'd you do about it? Did you make excuses? Ah, well, I, I get irritated with the kids, and I, and I yell at them. Okay. What'd you do about it? A blameless man is honest about his sin. A blameless woman is quick to repent of their sin, humble enough to say, hey, I was wrong here. Forgive me. Quick to turn away from sin. So God's desire is that you and I would increase in this unblameable holiness, which is primarily demonstrated through our love for one another. So when Jesus comes back, notice it says he comes back with all of his saints. That word can be translated all his holy ones. Many theologians think here that it's actually talking about angels. When Jesus comes back, if he were to come today in the clouds, who is he coming with? Saints or angels? Same word. The answer is yes. Both. With saints and angels, there are thousands and myriads of spirits of righteous men made perfect in heaven, and their souls are with the Lord waiting to come back at the return of Christ. Well, that is our first part. We're going to practically pray to progress in, in love. God, help me to be more loving. But now we're going to move into an area where the Thessalonians apparently were lacking. And I want to pause here and I just want to mention those of you that are watching right now with your children, this passage is going to speak pretty frankly about sexuality. And I think as parents, each of you have to sort of make a decision here. I would probably say if your children are under 12, 11, 10, that this might be something that you would probably say, hey, we'll talk about this as we, as we go along, but I just want to put that out there. But I also want to say this, that at some point we all are going to learn about sex. I would far rather that we learn God's view of sex than learn it in the gutter in the locker room. Even the very idea that people refer to sex as the nasty, that's hideous. There's nothing nasty about sex. Sex is a beautiful gift from God. This is not something that add 
God added after an Adam and Eve sin and said, all right, fine, but this is how you have kids. This was a gift of God that was before they fell. So there's nothing dirty, there's nothing unclean, there's nothing impure about sexual relation between a husband and wife. It's a beautiful, mysterious gift of God. It is not just for procreation. There's a bonding, there's a, there's a pleasure, there's a delight that God has given to us as a gift. And so the problem is most of us have had our view of sex affected by our experiences. Some of you may have had something happen to you or seen some images as a child or all kinds of things can affect our view of sex. And one of the beauties of the Bible is to allow God's word to reshape our thinking, to transform us, to teach us a new way to look at life. And so the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So the problem is not sex. The problem is human sinfulness that has chosen to indulge our sexuality outside of the boundaries of the will of God. Now, by way of background here, it's really important to understand what life was like in the first century for Thessalonians and most of the the Eastern world. There were temples all around, including Thessalonica, in which it was considered a religious act to go and to have sex with a prostitute. That was part of your religion. In addition, it was common for men to have more than one lover. Yeah, you have your wife. There, there are documents where, where famous Greeks and Romans would, would, would say things like, yeah, your wife has have kids, but then you have your girl on the side. They also had all kinds of sexual activities with men with boys, men with men, men with women, much like our culture, not necessarily, although there is a lot of pedophiles and so forth, but our culture is promoting that it's okay to have same-sex relationships. It's fine to have sex before you're married. The only thing that matters is be safe. Can I tell you that this is a lie from the pit? And I want to solemnly warn you that the Word of God says this. Colossians 3 says, because of immorality, the wrath of God comes upon the disobedient. So let's take a look at this beautiful passage in which Paul apparently had told these Thessalonians, listen, now that you're a believer, it's not appropriate for you to have sex anymore with a prostitute. It's not appropriate for you to have an extramarital affair. It's not appropriate for you to have sex if you're not married. It's not appropriate for you to be taking your clothes off and touching one another in areas that we call private. If you are not married, that is sin. But apparently there must have been some pushback or, or, or some weren't ready to give that up. And so Paul's going to now challenge them in this area. And I want you to look at this because, parents, I'm going to tell you right now, you had better figure out how to talk to your kids about sex because if you don't, the devil will. 
Now, I know that Janet Miller has mentioned that there are some Christian resources that we can make available. But again, what we want to do is have a biblical, wholesome view of sex. I want to see sex the way God views it, a wonderful gift in marriage, but one that man has chosen to abuse. This passage is going to raise questions. This passage is going to convict. This passage is going to call some of you to some deep change. This passage is going to require some of you to get some counseling or to to open up about your life and, and to be accountable. But the word of God and the truth is what sets us free. And so let's start in verse 1. Paul says, finally then, brothers. He often uses that when he begins his practical section. Philippians 3.1 begins the same way. Finally, it's not like he's on his last point. He's like, now, let's talk about the, the meat and potatoes of Christian living. We request and we exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction how you ought to walk and please God just as you are walking that you might excel still more for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus for this is the will of God your sanctification Brothers and sisters, I cannot be more urgent in begging you to give solemn attention to the subject of sanctification. This doctrine is not something that's for only certain Christians. This is the heart and soul of Christian living. In fact, The author of Hebrews said, pursue sanctification because without it, you will never see God. It is not optional for a Christian to give attention to their sanctification. It is obligatory. It is demanded. The problem is partly in the way that the gospel is often preached nowadays. People preach the gospel and they just tell people, here, Jesus forgives you. Free hell insurance. Now, See you when Jesus comes back. Certainly they don't say it like that. But it is an abysmal failure to teach people about justification, that God freely pardons you and pronounces you righteous if you don't then teach them about sanctification. So I want to start by defining this word, sanctification, and then Paul's going to talk about a major part of our sanctification, our sexuality. But he starts with the whole doctrine of sanctification. This word is the same root as the word holiness. This is God's will, your holiness. The word itself literally means to be set apart. When you become a Christian, God sets you apart. You belong to him. And we call that positional sanctification. The moment you become a Christian, God claims you. You are now mine. You're no longer part of this world. My favorite illustration for this is those of you who have a mother that has sewing scissors. You remember, we might have nine pair of scissors in the house, 
But you better not get caught using mother's sewing scissors to cut your cardboard poster. Those scissors were set apart only for sewing. So think of yourself, Christian, my dear brother and sister. Each of us as Christians, when we become saved, God sets us apart. So in our position, we are already sanctified. 1 Corinthians 12 says, or 1 Corinthians 6, 12 says this. Some of you were thieves and liars, but not anymore. You were washed in the blood, and you have been sanctified in the name of Jesus. That's the positional part of our sanctification. But there's a practical, ongoing aspect of our sanctification. Justification is a once-for-all declaration. God says, I declare you righteous. Sanctification is an ongoing process. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, but we are being saved from the power of sin. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification, and I'd encourage you to even write down a brief definition. It's becoming more and more like Christ. It's becoming increasingly more like Jesus. Now, there's a lot of nuances to that. God takes a great personal interest in our sanctification. In fact, if you look over in chapter 5 for a moment, Paul says in verse 23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Verse 24, faithful is he who calls it and he will bring it to pass. God has a very active part in making me like Jesus. But the other side is my personal responsibility. I have to cooperate, submit, obey, trust, depend on God. I have to diligently work towards my sanctification, knowing that God is working in me this sanctification. It's kind of like two oars on a rowboat. If I just row with one oar, I'm going to spin in circles. And that's how some people view sanctification. They say, hey, listen, brother, you just have to let go and let God. Jesus does it all. No, that's not balanced. Yes, we just sang a beautiful song, Benjamin led us. He will hold me fast. Philippians 1, 6 says, He that began a good work in me will complete it. Christ will continue to make me like himself. But he doesn't hold me fast while I sit around and let go. He tells me, Tom, pursue sanctification. Work out your salvation. Be diligent. This is my will for you, Tom that you become progressively like Christ. And so the the other or is my discipline, my striving in prayer and and surrender and, and the spiritual disciplines, the means of grace. Paul says, this is God's will for you, brothers and sisters, that you become more like Christ. In other words, that you become more holy, If you want to read a great passage about this, read Hebrews chapter 12 where it says, don't despise the discipline of God because he's a loving father. 
He says, earthly fathers discipline us as seems best to them, but God disciplines us that we might share his holiness. God's number one goal for me is not what I do, but who I am. It's not my happiness. It's my holiness. God is working in me to change me into the image of Christ. This is not some little subset that I give an hour of attention to on Sundays. This is my walk with God. The same Lord Jesus that saved my soul from the penalty of sin is sanctifying me in my body and spirit so that I am becoming like him. So many times people will wonder, what is God's will? Is it God's will for me to go to this school or that school? Is it God's will that I buy this car or that car? That I live in this house or take that job? What's more important is that I understand this is the will of God, your personal holiness. Now, if you're one of our fellowship and you claim to be a Christian and you could care less about your sanctification. It really doesn't matter to you whether you become like Jesus. You don't think about it. You're not interested in it. It's not something that you're willing to to move towards. Then you need to search yourself because every person that God calls to himself, he draws them in to this sanctification. And so if you're a Christian this morning, this should be resonating with your spirit. Yes, this is true. This is what God wants for me. Now, maybe you haven't been participating, cooperating, and surrendering and obeying, but in your soul, you should be repenting and and saying, God, sanctify me. Now, one of the primary places that our sanctification is going to show up is in our sexuality, but it's not the only place. So when Paul mentions some of the manifestations of our flesh, that remaining sin in us, he talks about relational sins. Galatians 5, he says the deeds of the flesh are evident. He talks about anger and jealousy and strife. So my sanctification involves relationships, but it also involves my sexuality. This is why he started off. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. The deeds of the flesh are evident. Impurity, immorality fornication, adultery. So Paul's calling out to these Thessalonians and saying, my brothers and sisters, this is God's will, your sanctification. And here's an aspect that I want you to think about, that you abstain from immorality. The Greek word here for immorality is porneia. It's the word from which we get pornography. And porneia has a broad range of meanings in the New Testament. It's any kind of sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. It could be premarital sex. It could be adultery. It could be homosexuality. It could be incest. It could be prostitution. It could be bestiality. It could be pornography and masturbation. It could be putting your hands all over another person's private parts. Don't let anyone tell you that Fornication is only the act of intercourse. And what God is saying is that now that you're my child, it's my will for you that you abstain from indulging your flesh in these 
deeds of the flesh that are outside of my will. It's not that I don't want you to ever have sex. I used to live in a, a neighborhood where I had a fenced yard and I had a playground in my yard for the children, but the neighbors behind us had a very fierce German shepherd. And occasionally the children would lose one of their balls and it would go over the fence and I would say, absolutely never ever climb that fence never you might not understand but you will get hurt if you go outside of that fence think of sex that way God's not up in heaven going give me a reason to punish you God has given us the playground of sex for marriage and I realize that those of you who are single are going when's it my turn I need to be married. And God knows your heart. He promises to provide your needs. If you needed to be married today, you'd already be married. He will give us self-control. He will give us grace. But in the meantime, we need to be honest and open and say, God, nothing less than holiness. Now Paul's going to go on and describe what this looks like. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. What does that mean? Your vessel is your body. Parents, this will give you some guidelines. There are so many people going, give me some boundaries. Can we hold hands? Can we kiss? Can we have frontal embracing? The Bible gives us the general principle. Possess your body in holiness and honor not lustful passion. So, a kiss goodbye is different from passionate making out. Anything that is going to arouse our lustful passions and is going to put us in a place where we're being drawn towards disobeying God, let's pray that we can stay back from that. And I can imagine the the, the Thessalonians going, are you kidding me? All my friends sleep around. Why can't I do that? And Paul says, exactly. That's what the Gentiles do because they don't know God. But we know God. We've been forgiven. We are in recovery and being changed. And if, if, if Christianity doesn't make its way into our sexuality, then what witness do we have? We're just like the world. And so we watch and pray. And apparently in this fellowship, as we wind down, in this fellowship, apparently somebody was getting too close to somebody else's spouse. Who's cheating who? Paul says, no man should transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. to mess with another man's wife. Even the world understands this. Even godless pagans get this. Remember bad, bad Leroy Brown, the baddest man in the whole darn town. He was better than old King Kong, but he learned the hard way. You don't mess with the wife of a jealous man. Even the book of Proverbs says that. Don't mess with another man's wife because though you, you give him many gifts, you won't appease him. But when you mess with someone's spouse, your greatest fear, or my greatest fear, ought not to be, what if they get me? 
Because look what Paul says. He goes, if you mess with someone's spouse, the Lord is the avenger in all these things. And that's not the first time he told him that. He said, I told you this before, and I solemnly warned you. So, brothers and sisters, I beg you, and I warn you, and I plead for you, and I'm not up here saying I'm a graduate of perfect holiness in my thoughts. Pray for me. Pray for every pastor. Pray for his wife. Pray for every spiritual leader that God will keep us from sexual sin. It's ruining our culture. It's ruining the church. The name of God is blasphemed among unbelievers, particularly because of the impurity that so many Christians are living in. So with fear and trembling, pray for us and pray for your soul and for one another that we might work together to grow a church in personal holiness, especially in sexuality. But I want you to see how Paul closes this. He says, God hasn't called us for impurity. He's called us in holiness. Consequently, I could picture someone out there saying, I don't have to listen to Paul. And if I was Paul, I'd say, I'm an apostle, son. If you don't listen to me, I will call the wrath of God down on you. But look how tender Paul is. Look how humble Paul is. He says, if you reject this, you're not rejecting me. He who rejects this, he says, is not rejecting man, but God. So my brothers and sisters, if you're going to persist in sexual sin and you are a Christian, you better right now look up to heaven and say this to God, I am not going to obey you. I refuse. And can I tell you, that is a bad idea. So for some of you this morning, God is calling you to repentance. For some of you, you're kind of, you're not there yet, but you're on the edge. And God's warning you and bringing you back. Some of you are struggling deeply. And, and, and God is, 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 is reaching out and saying, I want to help you. One sermon isn't going to solve all of our sexual problems, but hopefully it will get the discussion moving that you will begin to reach out. You can email me or Pastor Bob or Pastor Austin, Pastor John, Pastor Jeremy. Somebody, talk to somebody about these things. Some of you as couples are struggling. I hear this all the time as a pastor. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you won't struggle and have friction in your sex life. And these are things that we can work through with the scriptures and prayer. You can go back to the book we've recommended, Marriage Matters. He's got a great chapter on that. In closing, look how tenderly Paul ends this. He doesn't say, if you reject God, God's going to bring his wrath down on you. He says, here's the God who you're rejecting, the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Nothing moves us to change like grace and love, not fear, not God's going to give you a beating. God will tear your leg off. No, God loves you, and he gave you his Holy Spirit. Why does Paul close with this? God gives his Holy Spirit to you. Because only the Holy Spirit can give us the power to change. Only 
only the Holy Spirit can change my desires, change my heart, and give me strength to change my life. And so if you're struggling with your sexuality, don't try to fix it on your own. God has given us his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May we grow in holiness, love, and purity. Help us to take what we've heard from the word and, and thank you that you're going to sanctify us. Help us to be aware of the areas that we lack and to press in on them and to want to obey you because you loved us and gave yourself for us. Thank you for the spirit of God that empowers us changes us, who comforts us, who works in us to will God's pleasure. Father, for anyone out here who's struggling, may this word from the Lord bring healing, but it also brings cutting, bring repentance and change, bring wholesome discussions and discipleship from this passage. May all of us truly give great attention to our sanctification. Thank you, Lord for wanting us to become like Jesus. And if there's anyone that's listening that's not a Christian, may they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died for their sins and rose again. May they call upon the Lord and accept Jesus Christ into their lives as Lord and Savior. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.